seated. I know you're used to it. We're going to read God's word now uh, just for the sake of time. So if you'll take God's word, if you have a copy of it, Isaiah chapter 57 verses 1 through 21. And then uh, following the reading, you uh, may be seated. But let me take this moment to read God's word. 57 of Isaiah verses 1 through 21. It's the whole chapter. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near sons of sorcerer of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You set your envoys far off and set down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not, have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. 
Oh, Father, bless your word. Now we pray as we spend these few moments studying this passage, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher, our hearts would be receptive, receiving the word of Christ for the encouragement of our hearts and the transformation of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I feel somewhat like we're on a sort of a treadmill, at least in my own heart I do. We're kind of moving through as quickly as we can. We're going we're gonna to treat this passage a little bit differently. I'm well aware of the time and especially having the Lord's Supper as we will celebrate in a few, moments, a few minutes. And, and then, of course, uh, the reception of new members, which we really wanted to do. And it's a fitting day to do it as we celebrate our communion together as members of the body of Christ. And so all of that is good. But... We do have this passage that is before us, and I, I want to approach it in a slightly different way than what we normally would do and be uh, somewhat briefer uh, than we normally are. But you will remember that uh, we're in that second portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, the two great divisions of the book of Isaiah, and we're in uh, sort of the second of two divisions within that section. Chapters 40 through 55, the Lord has set before his people who will be coming back from captivity. Remember, the, the audience for chapters 40 through 66 is the people who will in the future be in captivity and be returning to Jerusalem. The Lord in chapters 40 through 55 has already set before the people his glorious salvation, uh, demonstrated in their deliverance eventually by his hand from Babylon, representing the deliverance that is found in the servant of uh, Isaiah, the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord has done it all. He's accomplished the work of salvation for his people. That's what Isaiah is talking about in chapters 40 through 55. 55 reminded us that this salvation was not merely for one nation, the Jewish people alone, but for all the nations of the world. And so the call goes out to all who would hear that the Lord would open the ears of those that he is pleased to call and that they would respond to the call and come to him. And the nations themselves, Gentile nations, would come into this glorious kingdom. He calls and by his enabling grace, the nations come. And the question we've been dealing with, and we said in chapters 56 through 66, is the question of what kind of people are they to be then, who are now returning from captivity. The Lord is reminding them in these chapters of what he's prepared for them and what kind of people they are to be. Now they are as part of the kingdom, this everlasting kingdom that the Lord has created through his son uh, Jesus Christ. And so we began last week to look at that in Isaiah 56, that they were to keep justice, to do righteousness in light of the fact that he will in, uh, deliver them, that he would live or they would live as if the Lord is always at hand, that they would live in light of what God has done, that their their justification, their being made right before God through the work of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, would lead to uh, transformed lives to the glory of his name. So that's kind of what these chapters are pointing to. And this morning we're in chapter 57, which I'm, I'm really dealing with in, in a very particular way. Many years ago in the year 1666, so a lot of years ago, there was a little book that was published by the great Puritan preacher Thomas Watson. 
who is most noted for his body of divinity, a very important work, sort of a commentary or an exposition of the shorter catechism. He wrote a book uh, based on Psalm 32, verse 6, and that's, here's what that psalm says in that verse. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, that is to the Lord, at a time when you may be found. Some of you know that title of that book. It's one of those great titles that I enjoy. It's the godly man's picture drawn with a scripture pencil with a subtitle that says this, some characteristic marks of a man who is going to heaven. It's a great title, isn't it? If you want to read a good book to tell you what your life should look like according to the scripture, uh, that's a great book to read. The men in years past have read portions of it together in our uh, gatherings and our studies over the years. And so I would commend that book to you. But I've always been sort of saddened that he never wrote a second book, and that is, what is the ungodly man's picture? It would have been great for him to do that. Uh, to my knowledge, he hadn't, and no one has either. So we're going to look at this this morning sort of in that, uh, with that in the background. We're going to look, first of all, at a picture of the ungodly that these verses give to us, and then a picture of the godly man, briefly, that these verses also point out. And that really, I think, is the contrast of this chapter. That really is the essence of it. It really does compare and contrast the, the godly and the ungodly. Now, I believe the audience is still the people who will be delivered from Babylon and set free and come back to Jerusalem. And I think the Lord here is reminding them of the reasons that they went into captivity, why he judged them the way that he did, reminding them that they are not to any longer walk in that way, and then reminding them in the latter part of this chapter of the promises that he gives to them as they humble themselves before him as they return uh, from their captivity. So look with me, and again, it will be fairly quick and brief, but look with me at several sort of pictures drawn by a scripture pencil here of the ungodly that we find really beginning in chapter 56, verse 9, through 57, verse 13. Now, I said last week that we would come back to these verses, and by that I mean 9 through 12 of chapter 56. They really do belong to uh, this section in chapter 57, because while their focus is on the leaders or the shepherds, uh, whom Isaiah here calls responsible, irresponsible and blind. He refers to them as watchmen. It really is a picture of, of ungodliness, and, and it's targeted again at leaders, but it carries over, I think, to all who are ungodly. And the picture here in verses 9 through 12 is a picture of leaders, shepherds, or watchmen who are self-serving. Self-serving, you see that there. The Lord calls in verse 9, all the beasts of the field. That's probably a reference to the surrounding nations that he appoints and calls to come as instruments of his judgment against his people. Uh, the watchmen he refers to in verse 10 through 12 as those who are blind, have no knowledge. They're silent dogs. You, you get the image there if you're thinking about uh, what a watchman does, right? You think about the noise that a watchman should wake, the calling to the people in the face of danger. They're like silent dogs. They, they don't bark. 
Instead of guarding and, and warning, they're dreaming, they're lying down, they're loving to slumber. They have a mighty appetite that never has enough. They're insatiable in their appetite for their own pleasures and their own interests. They have no understanding as shepherds. They've all turned to their own way, each one, according to verse 11, to his own gain, one and all. And they delight in having more and more of these things, getting themselves drunk and sleeping, if you will, on the job instead of doing what God has called them to do. Now, there are many places in the prophets. Ezekiel is a great place. Chapter 33, chapter 34, that talks about unfaithful shepherds. But the heart of this really is shepherds who are self-serving. And one of the marks of ungodliness is clearly a sort of an interest in serving oneself rather than others. Shepherds are called to serve and to give their lives for the sheep, to call to protect them and to guard them, to warn them of the dangers that are there. When you read in Jude, for instance, verse 12 and 13, he talks about the the ungodly in Jude, and he calls them these things. But you'll note shepherds are mentioned. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, they, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds who are feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. One of the marks of ungodliness is an attitude of self-serving, that what they do is always for their own gain, for their own pleasures, with no concern at all for the sheep over which God has made them overseers. That New Testament reading from 1 Peter 5 reminded us of the kind of shepherds God has placed in his church. And he calls them there, those who are to care for, to oversee the sheep, to not do it for their own shameful gain, but rather to be examples to the flock. A mark of ungodliness is a spirit of self-serving, that we don't care for others, but only for ourselves. You go along with me, you'll see some other marks. We'll note them briefly in chapter 57, verse 1. You have a failure on the part of these leaders or shepherds to defend the righteous. This is particularly heinous, as the Lord says here, that the righteous and the devout men are taken away. They, they actually perish and die in the face of those unfaithful shepherds. There's a failure on the part of the ungodly to defend the righteous. They're seeking their own gain, their own interests. They're encouraging wickedness all around them. And so it's the righteous who will suffer. You think of the problem Habakkuk brought as he prophesied a hundred years or so after Isaiah, as he was looking at the judgment that God was going to bring through Babylon, remember his initial complaint. He said, destruction and violence are all before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. When a society, when a nation, when the world around us continues to fail to defend the righteous. It becomes a clear mark of ungodliness before the eyes of the Lord. That's what is 
really, again, heinous in, in this uh, chapter here, as you see the righteous are being forsaken and are dying. But notice the promise in the end of verse 1 through verse 2. The righteous man is taken away from his calamity, and he enters into peace. It is a mercy that God often works in these times as the righteous are not uh, protected, that the Lord uses it as a way to deliver them from this world's calamity. And we've seen that many, many times as we see uh, the righteous around the world uh, persecuted, and we pray for the church persecuted, those righteous saints of the Lord, wherever they're found. And sometimes, sometimes God uses all of that even the ungodliness of wicked men, to deliver his people. And there's the wonderful promise, deliver them from calamity. They enter peace. They rest on their beds. It means a resting in their death. Those who walk uprightly before the Lord. The Lord is merciful, even though the leaders, the shepherds fail in their duty to protect and to defend uh, the righteous. Build upon that another mark you see in verse 5, you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking, verse 4? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? It's sort of a humorous image here, a picture of the ungodly, the unrighteous, essentially mocking all that is holy. And that is the picture here. They're mocking ultimately God and righteousness itself. Uh, they're sticking out their tongues like children tend to do as they, as they mock and make fun. But they are mocking what is holy. That's a, a mark of ungodliness, to, to mock, to make fun of, to uh, mock that which is holy and those who follow in the way of holiness. So you add these together, you're getting a picture, sort of a portrait of the ungodly, very briefly here in chapter 57. The larger part of this whole section actually has to do with the worship of idols. We've, we've spent a lot of time in our study of Isaiah on the worship of idols, how God condemns it, how it was one of the great sins of his people in those days. But the worship of idols is the mark of ungodliness. We've, we've noted rightly that we were created to worship. We will either worship the one true and living God or we will worship something else ourselves, the things of this world, other people in our lives. We are always worshiping something, offering our worship, our devotion to someone or to something. And the ungodly worships in the biggest, broadest sort of description, idols, those things which are not God themselves. The reference here to the loose woman, the sorceress, most agree is probably a reference to the idolatrous practices of the nations that the people were drawn into and that God is reminding them of here. When he talks in verse 5, for instance, in following, as they burn with their lust among the oaks and under every green tree, these are all pictures of idolatrous practices in the hills, among the terebinth trees, among the oaks. These are all the pictures we see throughout the Old Testament that God's people were doing uh, in their rebellion against him, in their ungodly practices. It, it went so far as you see in verse 5, slaughtering their children in the valleys, a reference to the, the horrible practice of offering their children to Molech and the other gods of the nations. 
And so the worshipers of idols is the picture here. The uh, smooth stones that they would find and take and set up as the images that they were worshiping. The drink offerings that they would offer to them. The, the immoral sexual practices that they would engage in. You see that in verses 7 and following as it talks about making your bed. As it talks about lying down in nakedness. These are all references to the idolatrous practices. And so where we're trying to sort of paint or, or sketch the ungodly with a scripture pencil, as Watson did the godly, we would say that part of that picture includes the worship of things other than God, the worship of idols themselves. That, that really goes all the way through the, the chapter. And the Lord sort of mocks them. You can see the the way the Lord speaks to them in verses 11 through 13 as he talks about uh, how they who trust in idols, who worship idols, who give themselves to idols, can trust in those idols when calamity comes. He mocks them in verse 13 when he says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. There was no righteousness. There were no holy or godly deeds. They won't profit them at all because they don't exist. Cry out to your idols. Let them deliver you. We've seen that in our study before. If you're going to worship and trust in them, then when calamity comes, trust in them then. And so the worship of idols is part of that that sketching with a scripture pencil that we see. And then finally, and you don't see this in these verses, but you see at the very end of the passage, if you look at verse 20, the Lord makes this comment, which is a very striking comment worthy of Sermons in and of itself, but it describes the wicked this way, verse 20. They're like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. I think this picture is a picture of the ungodly in their love of all things that are evil. The Bible's very clear that the ungodly delight in the doing of evil. They delight when others do it as well. You remember that passage from Romans chapter 1 at the very end, that long list of the the decline of man and his rebellion against God. It says this, though they know God's righteous decree, which they have suppressed in unrighteousness, that those who practice such things, these evil things that he spoke of, deserve to die, deserve judgment. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Misery loves company. Sinners love company. And when they delight in evil and are lovers of evil, the ungodly love when other people join them and participate with them in the practice of these things. Proverbs 2 again says this, verse 14, who forsakes the path of righteous uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. What what a description of the ungodly, those who are lovers of evil. The Lord, in telling them all of this as they prepare to come back to the city of Jerusalem, is that this is why he punished them, and this is the way they are not to walk in again. The ungodly are lovers of evil. Now, at the end of this, uh, that's really all we're going to do as far as 
these marks here. We could do more, but the end of verse 14 does form a transition to the godly. If you look at the end of verse 14 of chapter 57, you see the transition. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. As they return, they're reminded that they are to take refuge in the Lord who is their strength. And there's a promise of blessing that comes to this. Before we look very even more briefly, because it's a briefer passage at this um, portrait of the godly that we have here in Isaiah. As you hear these sort of marks, this portrait that's being made, if we were to be drawing it before you, literally with a pencil, and you see the, the ungodliness of the unrighteous, these characteristics are strikingly present in the day in which we live. The world in which we live, we see it everywhere in our own nation, which is why we pray so often for Revival and reformation. But don't we see this? The self-serving of man, pursuing their own ends, their own desires at the expense of others. The, the failure sometimes of our civil government and others in our nation and in our world to defend the righteous, which God and his word commands. The, the mockery that we see everywhere around us of all that is holy and, and righteous and pure and just and good. We see people everywhere worshiping idols themselves and fame and, 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 and just all kinds of things that the world offers. And we see those who are lovers, true lovers of evil, the kinds of things that Paul tells the Ephesians were not even to, to speak about, those who do these things in secret. We're not even to talk about it, but it's happening everywhere. It's really a picture of the world in which we live. A picture of the unrighteousness that abounds everywhere around us. And it's a reminder of how much we are dependent upon God to be delivered from those things. And that God might work powerfully by his spirit to change them. Well, we have a picture of the ungodly. Now turn with me in verses 14 through 21. Just very briefly, three things to note. What is the picture here of the godly? What do we see sketched out? The first thing I want to note is this idea that the godly are those who live humbly before the Lord. Humility is a mark. If you were to characterize all of the marks of godliness, humility would be near the very top of the list because it was the trait that characterized our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And humility is seen here in many different ways. Humility comes when we recognize who God is. He describes himself here in verse 15 as one who is high and lifted up, and who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. Humility comes to us as we meditate and think and remember about the God whom we serve, that he alone is high and lifted up, that he alone is the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., and that we, in turn, are called to be before him humble in all of our ways. One of the marks of the godly is that they are humble before him. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul as he sketched out the life of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And he says, I want you to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he talked about his humility or humiliation in laying aside his glory, coming in the likeness of our flesh. He's talking about a mind that is characterized 
by not thinking too highly of ourselves, but rather giving ourselves in the service of others, those who are humble before the Lord. Secondly, they are those who are contrite in their hearts. I think this is an echo back to chapter 55, the invitation to repent daily of our sins, to recognize that we continue to sin against the Lord, but God calls us to faithful repentance by his grace day after day. The contrite are those who are constantly struggling and aware of their sinful tendencies and constantly returning to the Lord and repenting of them. That's what a contrite heart is, one that is is quick to see and acknowledge their sin and quick to receive the forgiveness which God so freely offers to us in his word and through Christ. And then there's a third mark, I think, in these verses. We're not looking at them in their total, but there is a third mark, and that is those who then really delight in the law of the Lord. They delight in God's word. They delight in his law. They delight to do his will. If the ungodly are marked by those who delight to do evil, then the godly are marked by those uh, by a character of those who delight to do his will. To do his will. Jesus said, it's written of me in the scroll, I have come to do your will. And believers united to Christ, who have the spirit of Christ within them, also delight to do his will. That's a mark of godliness that we see in the Bible as we draw this sketch with a scripture pencil. Now, we could add more. I'm not going to. I really intentionally, uh, when we talked about doing the new members, I said, I'll, I'll make sure we're shorter and sort of more focused. But I want to stop there. And I just want to remind you of perhaps some other marks that you might be thinking of, not from this passage. But I referenced Thomas Watson's little book. And if you've ever gotten your hand on that, you know that all of these chapters are very short. But let me give you a picture of further filling out this image of the godly man by just reading what he says as he sketches the godly man from the scripture using a scripture pencil. He says, a godly man and woman of necessity here, we're talking men and women, a man of knowledge, a man moved by faith, a man fired with love, a man like God, a man called and careful about the worship of God, a man who serves God and not men, a man who prizes Christ, a man who weeps, a man who loves the word, a man who has the spirit of God residing in him, a man of humility, a man of prayer, a man of sincerity, a heavenly man, a zealous man, a patient man, a thankful man, a man who loves the saints, a man who does not indulge himself in any sin, a man who is good in his relationships, a man who does spiritual things in a spiritual manner, a man thoroughly trained in religion, a man who walks with God, a man who strives to be an instrument for making others godly. That's just one man taking a a scripture pencil and drawing a portrait of what a godly man or woman looks like. In order that we might pursue that, the Lord in this section gives us wonderful promises. We've noted some of them, but the promise of peace, the promise of rest, the promise of reviving our spirits in the midst of our struggle against sin, the promise of removing his anger from us and restoring his comfort and peace to us. All of these are motivations for us to walk in godliness of life. And so my question is simple this morning. 
Which portrait, as you saw, both of those sketched very quickly on either side, the ungodly and the godly, which portrait, honestly, would best characterize your own life as you see it now by the mercies of God? That's really what this section of Isaiah is about. What kind of people are those who are the people of his kingdom? It's a portrait the Lord paints to be like a mirror for us, that we would look into it and see the marks of his grace in our lives. It's never complete in this life, of course. It's never full in its details. There's always sort of parts that seem to be missing in all of the portraits that we look at of our own lives. But which portrait best characterizes your own life now? He's calling his people to look at this. He's calling them away from one portrait, which we are by nature, to another, which we are solely by his grace Isaiah 57, it seems to me, follows the pattern of Psalm 1, that psalm which introduces the whole of the Psalter and really talks about two different people and only two kinds. When I ask you to think about which portrait is yours, it's really only two choices you have. There's not a third. It's either the godly portrait that God is drawing by his own grace in your life, or it's the ungodly portrait of your own pursuit of self-interest and the worship of idols, etc., that we've talked about. The Bible is always very helpful here by reminding us that we can divide all humanity into two categories, and only two. There's only two, two portraits that you can look like, one or the other. Like Isaiah reminding the people who returned from captivity, the Lord throughout the New Testament reminds us, his people, to walk in holiness, remembering that the Lord is near. Psalm 1 puts it this way, Blessed is the man, the godly man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of the scoffers. But his delight, his joy is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, the ungodly but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The only way to do that, the only way to walk in godliness of life, is really seen in the psalm itself, like a tree planted by streams of water. They echo the words of Jesus, living water that flows out of us because Jesus lives in us by his spirit. That living water is what we're planted by in the mercies of God. And because we're drawing from that water, it bears fruit in our lives. And the portrait that is being painted of our lives, if we are in Christ, united to him, is a godly portrait. May God grant us grace as we look at those portraits, as we judge between them, that we might see to the praise of our God, a godly portrait being drawn in our lives. And may others see it as well as they look at our lives and see Christ living in us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. May they see the godliness of Christ himself within us. Let us pray. Father, this picture, these portraits are portraits that you have painted, that you have displayed in your word from the very beginning. Man in his fallen nature, 
a portrait of ungodliness given to all of the marks and the characteristics that we've noted this morning and so many, many more. And then a portrait of your grace at work in sinners like us, where you are redrawing, as it were, our portrait from being the portrait of the ungodly to the godly as we are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, that his life is being seen in us. We would pray even this morning that you would give us a clear sense of uh, where you have uh, worked in our lives, that we would see your hand uh, drawing these characteristics within us, sketching them, as it were, by your spirit, so that all praise and honor and blessing would belong to you. And we pray with great thanksgiving these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.